Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. You'll also hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's September 22nd. Shaka, the founder of the Zulu Empire, was killed on this day in 1828. A number of aspects of Shaka's life are really hard to conclusively pin down. He's the subject of all kinds of stories and folklore and pieces of oral tradition, some of which are probably exaggerated and others of which historians haven't completely agreed on the details of. He was born in about 1787. And the Zulu people existed at this time. Africa has been home to literally thousands of nations and peoples and tribes, all with their own languages, their own cultures, their own unique aspects. And the Zulu are one of them. Shaka was the son of a Zulu chieftain, although much of his childhood and youth were spent among another tribe. When Shaka's father died in 1816, Shaka returned home to take his father's place, overthrowing an older brother to do it. And at the time, there were not many people among the Zulu. There were only about 1,500 Zulu. It was one of the smallest peoples in the area. But Shaka changed all that, and that's really when the Zulu became an empire. He had proven himself through military service in his youth, and he set about reorganizing the Zulu army to reflect his own innovations and what he had learned in this time in in other militaries. He upgraded their weapons and armor and instructed them in new tactics and new strategies. And then he began a conquest of the neighboring clans and peoples, absorbing their members into the Zulu after defeating them in battle. Although this made the Zulu Empire much larger and much more powerful, it also led to mass migrations and huge amounts of displacement as people fled the advancing Zulu army and the violence that was coming along with it this period is known as the Mefakane, or the scattering. Over the next year, the Zulu quadrupled in size, and soon Shaka's army was large enough to challenge the most powerful armies in southern Africa. The Zulu kingdom became the most powerful nation on that part of the continent. At times, though, Shaka's military conquest had been tremendously violent. He had a growing reputation of being brutal in the world of warfare, And then in 1827, his mother died. His mother's death seems to have sent him into just an uncontrollable spiral of grief. He launched a massacre, and he outlawed the planting of crops and the use of milk for a year, along with the slaughter of milk cows. Aside from the obvious problems that would come from banning the planting of crops for a year and the slaughter of animals that were needed, Milk was a major part of the Zulu diet, so this led to a massive, massive famine. And in 1828, two half-brothers killed Shaka to stop him from destroying what was left of the empire he had created. In 1879, a little over 50 years later, the Zulu people were devastated in the Anglo-Zulu War, which ended in a decisive victory for the British over the Zulu You can learn more about that war in the September 20th, 2017 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. At the same time, though, today, the Zulu people are the largest ethnic group in South Africa. 
Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis for his research work on today's episode, and thanks to Tari Harrison for her audio work on this podcast. You can subscribe to the Stay in History class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for the birth of a woman who made a run at a pretty impressive glass ceiling. Hello, welcome to This Day in History class, where we dust off a little piece of history every day. The day was September 22, 1939. Japanese mountaineer Junko Tabei, known for being the first woman to summit the highest mountain on each of the seven continents, was born. Tabei was raised in Miharambachi, a small town in northern Japan. She grew up during World War II in relative poverty and was considered a, quote, weak child. But she did not let that label define her. She became interested in mountaineering when she was 10 years old. On a school field trip, she climbed Mount Asahi and Mount Chaosu, two peaks that are part of Mount Nasu, a group of volcanoes in Japan. She liked how climbing mountains was challenging but not competitive. A person could quit in the middle of the mountain if they wanted to. In 1962, Tabei graduated from Showa Women's University in Tokyo with a degree in English literature. She planned to teach, but she soon made climbing a priority and took jobs to support herself. She worked as a medical journal editor and joined several mountain climbing clubs. She also married climber Masanobu Tabei, whom she met in 1965. But the climbing clubs she was part of consisted mostly of men and weren't a completely supportive environment. She formed the Joshi Tohan Club for women and continued training. She climbed Goryu Dake and practiced her climbing skills on Mount Fuji. She went with a group up Annapurna 3 in Nepal. It was her first expedition to the Himalayas, and it took place in 1970. And she worked in places besides her job as a science journal editor. She offered piano lessons and English tutoring. Still, she set her sights on summiting Mount Everest. Tabei and Aiko Miyazaki planned to lead a trip up Mount Everest in 1975. But potential financiers were not convinced that 10 women could make the climb to the summit. The group did eventually make enough money to fund their expedition, thanks to a TV network and Tokyo newspaper, but it was a small amount considering previous costs for trips up Mount Everest. 15 women and six Sherpa porters ascended Mount Everest. Once all of the team had gathered, they began practicing the climbs at base camp. For a couple of months, the climbers moved between camps hiked sections up and down the mountain, and got adjusted to life on the mountain. Then they began the climb. But on May 4th, Tabei and her tentmates were buried by an avalanche. They survived, but there was pressure on her to give up. She was bruised and could not walk, and time was ticking. The monsoons were on their way. After a couple of days, Tabei began to walk again, and on May 10th, she and a Sherpa began to climb the mountain again. She had to crawl sometimes on the ascent, but on May 16th, the two of them made it to the summit. That made Tabei the first woman to reach the top of the mountain, and she got a lot of press attention for her accomplishment. In the following years, she summited Kilimanjaro, Mount Aconcagua, Denali, Mount Elbrus, Vincent Massif, and Java Peak. 
That made her the first woman to summit the highest mountain on each continent in 1992. Tabei went on to advocate for environmentalism. She did postgraduate work at Kyushu University in Fukuoka, Japan, studying mountain degradation caused by waste people leave behind. She also was director of the preservation organization Himalayan Adventure Trust of Japan. Tabei died of cancer in 2016. She is survived by Masanobu, Tabei, and their children. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. If you feel like correcting my pronunciation or my accent on anything that I've said in the show, feel free to leave a very kind comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at T-D-I-H-C podcast. Come back tomorrow for another tidbit from history. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.